Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 199, Athelred versus Alfred, one of the most exciting moments in probate history. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you'd like to support the show and help us out, you can sign up over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a decent pint per month. Or, if you're in Scandinavia, the price of half a pint per month. And thank you very much to Jody, Rachel, and Dave, who I hope is a member of the four Daves, for signing up already. Okay, I'm back! And you might be wondering what happened to me. And it turns out, a lot. I wanted to do something special for the members, so I set up the BHP website so every member would have their own personal login and would be able to read the transcripts directly on the episodes, also access the members episode within the site, and have your very own members area. Basically, I wanted to bring the site from 2004 all the way to, well, not really 2016, let's be honest. I was basically trying to bring it to about 2013. So I coded like a maniac and it was looking pretty great. And I was excited for you to take advantage of a more user-friendly site. Then I flipped the switch and all hell broke loose. Since then, I've been working for the last week and a half putting out fires and doing tech support for the understandably confused members. So to those members, thank you very much for being patient. And the short version of this is basically what I did is the same thing your kid does at school. They have every intention of making you a Monet, but in the end, they hand you a macaroni collage. And everyone knows it looks janky, but they put a lot of work into it, and it comes from a place of love. So I guess what I'm saying is, if you're a member, please head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and you can log in with your email address, and if you don't have a password yet, you can press the Forgot My Password button, and that should get you set up. And once you've done that, you'll be able to log into the new members area and check out the macaroni collage I made for you. I love you guys. Oh, and co-producer Z wants me to add that if something's broken, email me and I'll fix it for you. Also, she's made me promise never to do this again during tax season. All right, enough of that. So it's 865 and we just had yet another King of Wessex die. Alfred has been losing family members fast and furious, and this time, it was his older brother, King Athelbert. What's worse is King Athelbert seemed like he was a pretty decent fellow, and Wessex really could have used a long reign by a fair king with a sensible head on his shoulders. But what can he do? And now, thanks to the way that their father, King Athelwolf, had arranged his will, combined with the West Saxon cultural pressure that encouraged kingdoms to be divided among heirs, Greater Wessex was due to be split between his two remaining sons, Athelred and Alfred. And consequently, today's episode is going to be all about probate issues. No, not that, though you should probably book an appointment with your doctor that you've been putting off. No, probate. And probate law deals with issues of wills and their validity. So, estate lawyers rejoice. Finally, you're being served in the BHP. But before you skip this episode, and stop it, don't skip this episode, you should know that this really is an important moment in English history. And almost nobody bothers to tell it. 
The things that happen right now in this episode will not only determine whether or not Wessex will be immediately racked by a civil war, they will also set the tone for the arrangement of the future Kingdom of England, and they're going to sow the seeds for future political instability and dynastic feuds. Much like footnotes, wills are often treated as boring, but they actually contain a tremendous amount of drama and they can influence generations to come and cause long-lasting problems. Cool, right? So, as I mentioned, because of the way King Athelwolf arranged his will, the kingdoms of Wessex and Kent were due to go to his sons, Athelred and Alfred, in succession. However, something to keep in mind is, only a handful of years earlier, the Kingdom of Wessex was due to be handed over to Athelred, with Alfred inheriting in the event that he outlived Athelred. But instead, it went to their older brother, King Athelbert of Kent. And King Athelbert of Kent didn't appear anywhere in the inheritance scheme. So it's not like these things were absolutely set in stone. And actually, the transfer of the throne to King Athelbert of Kent was good for the kingdom in a whole variety of ways. After all, he seemed to have been a pretty good king, and he ruled Kent and Wessex as a single province, which made it quite a daunting target for any enterprising Vikinger bands. Also, remember that King Athelbert was a king who had a habit of looking forward, and it appears that he had an eye on unity. While his father, King Athelwolf, had split the kingdom up and created a system where the territories would be split even farther up among his families, in keeping with the general Anglo-Saxon culture of the time, King Athelbert seems to have wanted the kingdom to expand and pass as a single entity. He seemed to be moving towards consolidation rather than divestment. To that end, he promised his younger brothers that upon his death, they would inherit the kingdom of Kent in addition to the kingdom of Wessex, which they were already promised. And as you might remember, he went one step farther by mixing the courts of Kent and Wessex. And this is why it's really important to read the charters that survived. Because if you look closely at them, you'll see that the Kentish and West Saxon nobility were appearing on each other's charters. That's unusual, and actually it's really important because it suggests that their responsibilities, and quite possibly their lands, were becoming mixed. And that makes sense, right? I mean... If I wanted the people of Southeast Portland and the yuppie scum of the West Side to start to feel some sort of kinship with each other, I'd probably start mixing their properties and grant them lands on both sides of the Willamette, so that way their interests would start to be aligned. Anyway, the end result of mixing the courts was a more unified southern kingdom that Dumville called Greater Wessex, and overall, it was really good for the stability of the South. However, it created problems when it came to probate, because functionally, it meant that Athelwolf had bequeathed something that couldn't be split up. It was too intertwined now. And here's the thing. Not even mighty King Athelbert of Kent completely disregarded his father's will. Instead, he just tried to find a way to get around it by making an arrangement with his brothers to expand their inheritance in exchange for modifying the existing will. And that should give you a sense of how important and how enforceable this will was. If King Athelbert couldn't boldly disregard his father's wishes and disinherit his brothers, it's not like young Athelred could pull that off. So, even though Athelred was now a full-grown man in his 20s, and Alfred was still young and probably only 16 years old, 
they still needed to come to some sort of agreement. The law and culture of Wessex just wouldn't allow for Athelred to seize the entire kingdom of Wessex and tell his brother where he could shove it. But on the other hand, he couldn't give Alfred his own kingdom, even though culture kind of demanded that he do that. Because thanks to the efforts of his older brother, King Athelbert, there wasn't a Kent to give away anymore. This was a mess, and it would have been clear to everyone involved. So what do you do here? Well, to start with, you hold a Witan. And I suppose we should talk about what these things are before we go forward. If you're a fan of Bernard Cornwall's series, or you're interested enough in the Anglo-Saxons to do extra reading, you might already be familiar with the Witan. The Witan, also sometimes referred to as the Witanagamot, was said to be a great council of major nobles and church leaders. Think of it as sort of a West Saxon version of the great councils of Clove Show that used to be held by the Mercian kings. Except, here's the difference. The Witan had way better press. In fact, the Witan is so beloved by many scholars that you might have heard of it referred to in terms that make it sound like an Anglo-Saxon parliament. And to be honest, those scholars do a great job making it sound like one. But there's a problem. There's always a problem with these things. But in this case, it's a pretty big problem. And it's this. This idea of a Witan being like an early parliament doesn't seem to be based in reality. Earlier historians would talk about the Witan as a formal group, sort of like Parliament, where you had specific individuals who attended and were considered to be part of the Witan. But that breaks down really fast because we don't see a firm roster of members or even types of people who would be a part of this. It changed from Witan to Witan. Now, a hundred years ago, this concept of a formal Witan was pretty well accepted. But these days, the term tends to be dodged or avoided. Some historians have even gone so far as to claim that the obsession with the Witan, which largely arose during the Victorian era, had more to do with the Victorians' desire to see a reflection of their own society in the past than any true historical reality. That it was their desire to link the Victorian system all the way back to their earliest beginnings. And I don't blame them for that. A continuity like that is certainly appealing, and the Victorians didn't have much of a model for how to study history. They were sort of figuring it out as they went along, and they were also struggling with the dichotomy of developing a humanist ethos while also trying to justify their colonial and frankly brutal policies. Victorian England could probably have been diagnosed with a whole variety of disorders in the dsm 4 They had issues, and consequently, I can't wait to cover them, but the point is that I can absolutely see why the Victorians would want to establish a direct political link to the past. But it doesn't seem to be borne out in the record. That isn't to say that there weren't councils in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. There clearly were. As I said earlier, the Mercians held great councils all the time, and they would unite the clergy and the nobility in these councils. And we see these meetings appear in the record with regularity all the way until the Mercian hegemony collapsed. We also see the West Saxons holding councils. But this idea of a Witan, the concept of a formal group of nobles and clergy, well, it starts to look increasingly less likely the more you look into it. And this gets even worse when we start looking at relative powers. 
Older historians who are trying to make the case for the Witan would point to all kinds of Anglo-Saxon kings who held councils and say, see, this is clearly a thing. But the powers of those councils varied wildly from council to council. In fact, they varied just about as wildly as their respective members. The Witan has been alleged to have the power to select a king, for example. And I have no doubt that there were councils in early Anglo-Saxon history that did have that power. But we also see the transfer of power going along the lines of primogeniture. So where did that power to select a king go? And other councils seem to be formed largely just to witness whatever the king wanted to be witnessed, usually land grants. So it's just incredibly unlikely that this was an early form of parliament. At best, it seems that the Witan might have just been a cool term for a collection of whatever nobles and clergy were in this particular meeting doing whatever particular thing they needed to do at that moment. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that the Victorian notion of a Witan would be a bit like claiming that the pickup group that plays Ultimate Frisbee on a random day at the park is a formal team, and it's actually the predecessor to the Liverpool Football Club. They aren't organized, the players barely know the rules, and the rules probably change from game to game, there aren't formalized teams, and they aren't even playing the same game. So, when we talk about the Witan during this period, which we're about to do right now, it was just a council. It wasn't an Anglo-Saxon parliament, or anything like that. And there definitely wasn't a universal English Witan that was serving Athelred or Alfred. This was probably just the Victorians' knack for romance getting the better of them. So, did the Anglo-Saxons have councils? Yes. Was there a Witan? Yes, but probably not the way the Victorians wanted to believe it was. And now that we're clear on the Witan, let's get back to the conflict between Athelred and Alfred. Athelred was in a tough spot. His kingdom was under serious threat. There was a Vikinger camp in Thanet, and it had already ravaged the east and possibly killed his brother, King Athelbert. This was not the best time to cause a civil war. And a civil war is what he would get if he just spit in Alfred's eye and told him he wasn't getting anything. Now, usually, this possibility of having an angry heir launching a civil war would be avoided by giving Alfred a subkingdom. But as we've been talking about for the last several weeks, that ship had sailed. And now, the only way to keep the kingdom from coming apart at the seams would be for one of the brothers to inherit the whole thing in total. And that brother, according to the will, would be Athelred, which would leave Alfred in the cold. And that would be an invitation to war. From Alfred's perspective, though he was still young, he likely knew that the kingdom couldn't be effectively split up. So even though he would be given the Kingdom of Kent in normal circumstances, he wasn't going to be able to take it now without seriously destabilizing the South. And besides, who would want Kent anyway? They were lousy with Vikings. So while he did have a claim, he probably also knew that he could only push it so far but both of the brothers were still in a tight spot, and they were being hampered by their father's will and the cultural expectations that came with it. But on the upside, they both had reasons to want to get along. However, to complicate it, you also have personal aspects between them, which unfortunately we don't know much about. But you have to wonder, did they like or love each other? 
Were they rivals? We aren't told all that much, but personal feelings can always play a role in these things. In fact, speaking as an attorney, I can tell you that a shocking number of lawsuits end up being caused by and resolved through personal means. Usually, someone's feelings are hurt and they want an apology, but they're too dysfunctional or immature to openly ask for one. And the matter was complicated by the fact that Athelred already had a couple potential heirs. And Alfred wasn't an idiot. If Athelred took the throne without any agreement being struck between them, how likely do you think that Alfred would be to inherit? I mean, let's assume that Athelred loved his kids. Don't you think that he'd favor his kids inheriting over his little brother? There's at least a chance, right? And Alfred would have had to have been a fool to ignore that possibility. So, the two brothers made an agreement. Athelred would rule as king over both Kent and Wessex. But, Alfred would inherit upon Athelred's death. And this effectively disinherited his own kids. And it also gives us a window into who Alfred was. Here we have a boy who had dealt with tragedy his entire life. Scarcely a couple years could pass without someone close to him dying. And here he was, only a teenager at this point, and he was put in the middle of a potential succession crisis. And while he wasn't about to plunge the kingdom into civil war, he also had the sense and strength of character to look to the future and realized that a time might come where his brother, like so many other members of his family, would die. And he wanted the throne. So, even though he had all this stuff happening in his life, and even though he was young, he held his ground and insisted that his position on the line of succession was crystal clear. That had to be one tough bargain to strike. And it also had to have been incredibly uncomfortable because it would have been a big ask on the part of Alfred. After all, he was asking Athelred to basically write his own kids out of the line of succession. That's tough, but he did it. Something to consider, though, is that from Athelred's perspective, it's entirely possible that he didn't think that Alfred would outlive him. Alfred was sickly. He was bleeding so much from his backside that he couldn't even effectively engage in his princely duties. And... He was only about 16. Don't forget that part of the reason why we have a misconception of short lifespans during this period has to do with the frightening number of Anglo-Saxons who died before they reached the age of 20. But if you reached the age of 20, you had a good chance of living a long life. Well, Alfred wasn't 20 yet. And consequently, Athelred might have had every reason to think that Alfred might not outlive him. So this agreement might have made a lot of sense, not just for the kingdom, since it dodged a civil war while they had a Vikinger camp in Thanet, but it also made sense for his family, because Athelred stood a decent chance of outliving his sickly younger brother, Alfred. However, a handshake agreement between brothers wasn't enough. They needed to make it official. So, they needed to form a Witan. And many times, this appears to have been the purpose of a Witan. It doesn't look like they were deciding matters. They were simply witnessing agreements or advising the king who could either take their counsel or ignore them as he wished. So, a Witan was formed and the agreement was witnessed. And there we have it. In the midst of a personal tragedy 
having recently lost his older brother, King Athelbert. The new King Athelred disinherited his own kids in favor of his younger brother, Alfred. Though, as always, I should point out that the only reason we know this is because of sources who were under the influence of Alfred and his allies. So while I can see completely believable reasons for why King Athelred might have come up with this agreement, as we have discussed this week, I feel like I should also point out that Asser, the scribes, and other people under the influence of Alfred might have completely fabricated this agreement to explain why Alfred should inherit the kingdom rather than Athelred's kids. Because Alfred and his writers had every motivation to lie here. Ultimately, we will never know, but what we do know is that even as the Scandinavians were running around causing all sorts of chaos in Britain, once again, the West Saxons had managed to accomplish a peaceful transfer of power on the line of Egbert. For those of you keeping score, we're now looking at four peaceful transfers of power back to back. That's amazing when you think about it. And so, when you think about Alfred the Great, and we are definitely going to be talking a lot more about him in the future, I hope you remember the groundwork that was being laid by his grandfather, King Egbert, his father, King Athelwulf, and his brother, King Athelbert. Not so much King Athelbald. There's one in every family. Okay, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And why don't you join us on Twitter? It's always fun over there. We're at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities at the macaroni collage that I fondly call thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.